the rivalry between Sonoma and Napa Valley, a grape named after sheep, and almost getting kicked out of a vineyard. This week, it's all about wine. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore the great cuisine of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com, on the YouTube channel, and here at Destination Eat Drink, the podcast. This week, we're talking about wine. But first, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review the podcast. It's super easy to do, and thank you very, very much. This week, I thought I'd revisit some of my favorite conversations about wine. You know, I've been doing this show for almost five years now, so as I was digging around in the archives, I noticed so many interesting conversations about wine that I thought I'd share some of them again. So if you're new to the show, you might never have heard these before. If you're a longtime listener, you might say to yourself, oh, I remember that one, or maybe I must have missed that one. Anyway, they're all quite entertaining as we explore wine from California, Italy, Spain, and even Bhutan. All right, I'm ready to pop a cork, so let's drink. Destination, eat, drink. Sam Katuri comes from California winemaking royalty. His father is the legendary winemaker Phil Katuri, and Sam is carrying on the family tradition at 16600 Winery. Sam talks about the friendly rivalry between Sonoma and Napa Valley, plus he shares some of his favorite wineries. Now, you're in Sonoma Valley, Sam, and of course... uh, Napa Valley is right next door to you. I've always felt that there's kind of a maybe a friendly rivalry, a, a brother, 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 brother rivalry in uh, Sonoma and Napa. You're living it on a day to day basis. Um, how, how do you see it uh, between Sonoma and Napa? I think that sometimes the rivalry element of it um, can get a little, a little overblown. You know, and especially mm-hmm. I think in Napa. They don't necessarily think of Sonoma as rivals as much as <laughs> Sonoma thinks Napa as rivals, uh, which can be frustrating too. Um, but you know, I, I think friendly is is probably um, the best way to describe it. You know, at the end of the day, people who come here or people who seek out our wines wherever they you know wherever they are, um, they're looking for Napa wines and Sonoma wines with sort of the same level of sort of in the same category in their, in their minds are looking for, you know, that bunch of number one. Um, so, you know, I think that we joke about it a lot. You know, sometimes I joke that, um, you know, I can only get my passport stamped going into Napa County so many times a year. So <laughs> I, I can't get over that. All that often. Um, but you know, it's, um, it's definitely something that we talk about, but I think more the the consumers and, and the visitors, um, you know, don't necessarily differentiate between a, a day spent in Napa Valley and a day spent in Sonoma Valley, except for they probably spent a little less money when they were in Sonoma. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. When it comes to Napa and Sonoma, you know, they're two different regions. They're two different wine regions. But, is there a, uh, is there, what's the difference between the terroir and are there grapes that thrive in Napa that don't in Sonoma and vice versa? Sort of the interesting thing that's happened with Napa, um, you know, especially in sort of the last 30 or 40 years, um, is it's become so Cabernet dominant um, yeah. that 
I think people can sometimes overlook other great things that it can do. Um, so, you know, when people think about Napa, you think about those really just like big, lush, rich cabernets. Um, and Napa does a great job with that. Uh, but in similar to like Sonoma Valley and, and Sonoma County, because we have, you know, this bay, you know, the influence from the San Francisco Bay and from the ocean to our west, um, but also still get a, you know, a lot of sunshine, a lot of warm weather. Um, you can find little sort of niche uh, microclimates all over the place that are going to do well with a, a bunch of different varieties. So, that, you know, that's kind of one of the cool things about, you know, Sonoma especially um, is you can spend a day in Sonoma and go to three or four different wineries and taste 12 or 15 or 25 different varieties, both red wine, white wine, rosé. Um, so, you know, that's that's the one thing about it. It's sort of hard to define exactly, um, you know, what does the best here uh, because it, it can be so variable. Um, but I love personally um, some of the heritage varieties like Zinfandel and, um, and then um, the Rhone varieties like Grenache and, and Mavedra and Syrah uh-huh. um, that I think both in both Napa Valley and Sonoma Valley, you can find really good sort of niche little places for those varieties. So let's talk about some of those places. I, I won't ask you, Sam, what your favorite wineries are because that's not fair, but tell us maybe a couple of places that you like especially that you find are interesting or doing cool things in uh, Sonoma or or even Napa, if you like. For me, and, and maybe this is just because of I grew up in the mountains, um, I I always seek the mountain vineyard sites. Um, so that's kind of the first place I look is is the mountain range that separates Sonoma Valley and Napa Valley, the Mayakamas Mountains. And on the Sonoma side, uh, we call it the the Moon Mountain District. It's a little sub-appellation. On the Napa side, it's called the Mount Veter Appellation. Um, and, and those are the places I sort of hone in on. One of the, the great legacy brands is Mayakamas, which um, just got a, another you know top five uh, wine spectator wine of the year, um, you know, and that's a, a place that we farm. So you know, and that's kind of how I gear in on things. You find the appellations that you like, and then I look for you know really good farming practices. Um, so that's that's kind of how I approach it. And I try not to only be biased towards places that we farm for, um, <laughs> but I'm pretty biased towards places that we farm for. <laughs> Katie Quinn is an author, podcaster, and YouTuber who is an expert on Italian food. I talk with her about one of my favorite wines from Puglia, Italy, called Primitivo. Primitivo is an example of the native grapes of Italy, of which there are a record-shattering number of indigenous grape varieties to this country. It's incredible. I'm blanking on the exact number, but it's something like over 3,000 indigenous grape varieties. Mm. And so if you're like, well, what's a grape variety? Like Merlot. Merlot is a grape and it's also the name of a wine made from that grape or sometimes a mix. But um, it it is a variety of grape. So Primitivo is a grape from Italy, from the southern Italian regions. Puglia is especially known for it. 
And Primitivo wine is then made from those grapes, from Primitivo grapes. It is a, uh, it makes a red wine, a rosso, and it is a bold, powerful, <laughs> often, I mean, and you know, it, it, definitely like, fruity notes and sometimes just depending on how it's fermented depending on so many factors of how the wine itself is made you know it can it can bring on these other notes and and nuances and subtleties but for the most part it is going to be a bold tannin forward but kind of like dark fruits think like notes of blackberries black cherries you know Maybe a, maybe a little bit of spice in there. All, again, it's all depending on how it's fermented, how it's aged, what it's aged in, all of those things. But it's a bold, it's a bold wine. I love that you love such a bold wine, Brent. It's really good. I, I think of it as also rustic. Um, now, this we're overgeneralizing when we talk about a huge grape variety, uh, a huge range of wines like Primitivo. But in general. Uh, rustic. And also I remember going to a winery. I can't remember. Maybe it was Candido. Um, and they showed us how Puglia is on a ledge of limestone and how the roots go down into the limestone to find the water base. And this imparts, because it's on that limestone uh, base, it imparts a minerality to the wine. That I just, I, I love tasting that when I have the one, you know, you, you could almost call it a saltiness, almost a saline, but I, I think that does it a dis disservice because you think salt and wine, you're like, oh, that would be bad. But there is a minerality, I think, to some primitivos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Um, also, a fun fact about primitivo is that it's like the same variety as Zinfandel. Yes. Just a, a different name for the same grape. You got to be careful, though. I said that to a winemaker in Puglia once, and I thought I was going to get kicked off the vineyard. Why? <laughs> he just didn't want to hear it. <laughs> because I oh, think, well, yeah. I think <laughs> Zinfandel is associated with American and, uh, you know, uh, Primitivo is associated with Italian. I don't know why exactly, but he wasn't, sure, he yeah. wasn't thrilled. Um, and, and the other There's thing, a lot of pride. There's a lot of pride associated yeah. with the items from this area. Yeah. yeah, as there should be. Paula Morenza is a foodie tour guide for Culinary Backstreets in Barcelona. She talks about the local sparkling wine called Cava. Well, wine in, in, in Barcelona province, uh, it, it, it has a, a very large tradition. Uh, first, I should say that in Spain, uh, well, we have a lot of uh, different regions, not only the region destination areas, Farther than the origin destination areas, we have a lot of wine from the earth. And at the end of the day, Spain is one of the countries with the larger wine production in the world, together with France and Italy. And only in Catalonia, we have 11 origin destination areas for wine production. No? Cava, in fact, the, the sparkling wine, is the most famous Catalan wine. But the origin destination is bigger than Catalonia. That's why now they want to create another specific, more specific destinations to, to narrow a little bit more the region of Cava when it is actually a Catalan one. And um, in this direction, the center of the Cava production, it is Penedes area. So the larger wine production in, in Catalonia, it is around Penedes area, and Penedes is producing the 95%, more or less, 95% of the, all the sparkling wine in Spain. 
normally the cava that uh, that is made here, this sparkling wine is made from three main grapes, Charello, Perelada and Macabeu. And the whites, the white wines that they are also producing in the area normally came from the same grapes, no? that they are the ones that give the personality, plus another ones that they are going, are that they are being recovered during the last years, like the white Grenache, La Garracha Blanca. Uh, we mentioned uh, the white granache for whites and for reds. The most traditional variety uh, is uh, no doubt also the, the, the granache, no? la garnacha. Garnacha is the main grape for red wine production in Catalonia. Normally it's combined with other varieties like Cariñena or could be also some uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, a little bit of Merlot. Sometimes they combine it to make a coupage with other other possible varieties. A little bit of Syrah, for example, you are going to find also a lot. But Grenache is, uh, and Cariñena are the, the two varieties with uh, longer roots in, in Catalonia. Not only in Barcelona province with all the area of Penedès, but also another area that we should mention is Tarragona and Priorat and Monsen and also areas a little bit more inland like Terra Alta. No? So there are a lot of uh, production areas. Priorat, probably, this is in Tarragona, is in the context of the Spanish wine, is the other origin destination together with Rioja that uh, produce qualified, uh, that is a qualified origin destination. So that they have wines with a higher constant quality. The wines from Priorat, they are made normally with uh, Garnacha and Cariñena, but the peculiarity is the earth, no? They are producing an area with a lot of slate, what creates this very poor land, uh, where the water filtrates very easily and go to the, to the deep of the, of the earth. And, uh, that's, uh, in this area, you can get wines with a fantastic minerality, no? So it, they are very different from other wines because all this mineral flavor that give freshness to the wine, and it is, very well balanced and combinated with all the fruit that we have from the Grenache. And normally in the wines from that area, we have also an uh, interesting touch from the sea, from the Mediterranean and the forest. So a good uh, Catalan red wine normally could have all this environment around, no? the, the influence from the Mediterranean, the freshness from the minerals in the earth and a little bit of this, of this forest this Catalan forest that is mostly made of pines and bushes. Michael Jurgens didn't even know where Bhutan was when he planned a visit to run a marathon there. Shortly thereafter, though, he found himself planting a vineyard and starting the country's first winery. You mentioned the terroir, Michael, and I wanted to ask you about that specifically because when I think of Bhutan, I immediately think of the Himalayas. I think of steep, you know, passages and an unforgiving climate. Why am I wrong about thinking that way? And what makes the terroir so good for growing grapes? Well, so the steep slopes, you're not, you're not super wrong about. I don't know if you can see the background on my screen here. This is actually our yes, Yusupong yes. vineyard. Yeah, that's the Yusupong vineyard. And it, this one's at about 9,000 feet in elevation. And it's, it's, there's a lot of steep slopes in there. Uh, but Steep slopes are good for grapes. You know, the Mosul in Germany grows amazing Riesling and some of those slopes are up to 60 degrees, you know, steep. They look like cliffs. Portugal and the, the Duro Valley. Yes. You know, there's, you can just, you know, even in Napa on the mountain slopes on the Maya 
commas, um, you know, they get pretty steep too. So steep slopes are good for, for wine grapes in a lot of ways. Um, there are, there certainly are some cooler, more to your point, unforgiving spots within Bhutan. That's a kind of the Northern side of the country. Most of their current agricultural production is either in the South where it's tropical and they grow a lot of like citrus fruit and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. And then in the middle of the country where they grow a lot of vegetables and, and cereal grains. And some of these are the best in the world. I mean, Bhutan makes the best red rice in the world. They make the best cardamom in the world. Wow. And, and so for me, it was like, I'm looking at this going, wow, look at these mandarin oranges. These are amazing. And I was eating them and going, these are spectacular. Uh, if I can grow an orange, I sure as hell can grow a wine grape. <laughs> right, right. So how did you decide what grape varietals you were going to plant? Well, so I, I thought about it in two ways. So one way of thinking about it is, you know, what, what historically grows well there? <laughs> we don't have any of that data. So <laughs> no information. Yeah, zero. Uh, the, se the second thing would be, let's do some detailed soil analysis and climate analysis and try to, to nail in on exactly scientifically which one is the best. However, we don't have a lot of data because they don't have weather stations out in the middle of places like you, you see on my background. But I didn't have that either. And so then there's the, what can I sell? And, and if um, and I think there's a lot of curiosity about Bhutan, um, certainly within the fine wine industry. The average Joe consumer doesn't probably know what Bhutan is. Thinks probably thinks it's an island in Indonesia. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so you know, if you were to sell like a chocolina from, from Bhutan, that's pretty weird. But a Cabernet, like a, if you have a curious Cabernet drinker, they would look at it and go, "Oh, Cabernet, ah, oh, Bhutan. That sounds interesting. I'll try that." So we ended up picking eight international varietals, which were um, on the reds. It was Pinot Noir, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Malbec. Uh, Syrah. And then on the whites, we did Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay. And then I also picked Petite Mansang. And Petite Mansang is, is very rain tolerant. And Bhutan gets some monsoon pressure in the summer. So that was sort of my hedge. Um, the last round of vineyards we just planted uh, last month, I added in Riesling because of the, the climate. Um, I added Tempranillo, Sangiovese, and I added Chenin Blanc. So we've got 13 different things growing there. I don't anticipate that all of those are going to work and that's fine. I just need to find, you know, the two or three that work the best in these certain spots. Peter Austin and Sammy Dunham are Brits who make their homes in Abruzzo, Italy. They talk about the delicious wines of this underappreciated region. I would always take the Masciarelli if I have a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. Um, it's a good solid uh, red and uh, it's uh, always tastes great in Italy. Not sure if it travels well because I don't really see it on the shelves in, in the UK, although we're seeing more Abruzzo wines in the in UK now. But yeah, there's lots of good ones. I like the Pietrantoni, that's a good one. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, I guess like it's no surprise, is it? But when you're in the supermarket in uh, in Italy, there's a, there's a lot of Monte Porcianos right, on the right. shelf. <laughs> but the price range is, is dramatic as well. So you get extremely cheap ones. And uh, I don't know about you, Sammy, but I always have to buy the cheapest one because I want to see how bad it is. And it's it's never really bad. It's always uh, drinkable, really. And, you know, you're getting some stuff, really low-end stuff, you know, three euros a bottle maybe or something. It's been eye-opening to me, Peter, uh, moving to Portugal. We live in a, in a wine region that's well-known in Portugal. It's becoming more well-known 
um, internationally. But going into the grocery store and seeing a bottle of wine for one ninety nine euro, uh, <laughs> and and I look at it, I'm like this how how good could the well let's take it home as a joke you know and then we yeah, open yeah. and we're like man this is this is actually not only pretty good it's really good i can't believe it yeah you do wonder don't you like sometimes if i see it in an unusual container as well you know like <laughs> like it's in the same container as the milk or something i think right, right <laughs> try that right, right. but yeah it's always okay isn't it my my, my, my friends here in portugal tell me yeah you can get the boxed wine it's really good you know and we <laughs> and we think boxed wine are you kidding you know that's <laughs> that's for old ladies but uh yeah the the boxed wine you know all of it is is really really good um from our local region here uh Brilliant. sammy what kind of what kind of wines do you enjoy drinking in abruzzo i like montepetrano de Bruzzo. At, like just like Pete, um, I probably drink lots of what they what's even bulk Montepulciano de Bruzzo if I'm going to an agriturismo, um, and that it's just you know they're going to buy just like local wine in bulk and it's always very good. It surprises me as sometimes it's served chilled, which is oh. quite interesting. Okay. Um, uh, I think it's really I like I like Media Pepe, um, and some of Familia Febra, for example. So they're all, they all, they don't use industrial yeast in their, in their wine. So everything is natural yeast from the air. And it's really interesting the results that they're creating with their wines, the difference in taste and how you feel after you've been drinking it as well. Yes. That's huge. I think (laughs) I love Pecorino. Um, which is very trendy at the moment. You know, when you say when you say pecorino, I immediately think of cheese. Is this a is this a grape uh, okay. or is this a a kind this of wine? This is a grape. Okay. It's a it's so it's a grape and it was named. It's a very old grape that sort of like lost its appeal. Um, it's named after supposedly uh, sheep eating those grapes. They <laughs> they particularly like these grapes because they were quite sweet. Um, so yeah, that's how it, it's got its name, but it's a very ancient grape. It lost its popularity and now it's come back into vogue. Um, uh, a spumante pecorino is fantastic. It's, it's a real alternative to prosecco. So if you're looking for something, yeah, something fizzy, that's, that's fantastic. Um, cherisuolo as well, which is a rose of the region. They sort of just dip the grapes in some white wine and then drag them out um, <laughs> is superb and is, and is winning so many rosé awards all over the world. It's incredible. It's, it's definitely another one to look out for. There's lots of ancient ones that are coming back at the moment, which is, which is interesting. You know, they're trying, they're trying, they're try- it's a really diverse market. So um, it's encouraging at the moment. I love when the winemakers and the vineyards bring back some of the old, almost extinct grape varietals, because not only is it nice that they're saving some of these uh, varieties, but also it's great for us as wine drinkers to get to try something that, you know, people might not have had for 50 or 100 years. Exactly. No, it's it's fantastic. And, and yeah, and and, you know, you never know what might happen to one grapevine variety. Something may, you know, eat it and destroy it. So we need we need to keep all our we need to be as diverse as possible at the moment. I think. 
Okay, there you go. You know, as I was putting the show together, I thought I've had so many great conversations about wine over the years, and sometimes it's about well-known wine regions like Sonoma and Napa Valley, but when was the last time you actually picked up a bottle from Abruzzo, or Puglia for that matter, and surely never from Bhutan? That was a lot of fun revisiting those. If you want to hear the full conversations or follow any of my guests, you can get links in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED244. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we're talking about national dishes from around the world with foodie author Anya von Bremsen. Don't miss that. I've also got lots of foodie content at DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story, in fact, about a garden in Braga, Portugal, with an unusual foodie link. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also posted a video on the YouTube channel about a cool day trip from Porto. Get that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or go to YouTube and you can check out the channel at Destination Eat Drink 946. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who wants to start a scotch distillery in Bhutan, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.